Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation, and recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our first ever live Monday Breakfast show here with shiny new hosts, uh, Lucy and Will. Hi, Lucy. Good morning. Uh, how are you going? I'm very well. A little bit chilly. I know, right? Yeah. Melbourne winter. Yeah, it's Melbourne winter. Thankfully, we're here inside this nice warm studio. We've got an action-packed show today, don't we? We are talking with Kylie Troy West from Victoria Street Drug Solutions about the heroin crisis in Richmond and what this community action group is doing about it. That sounds really interesting. And also, we have heaps of other things on the show today. Uh, We'll be talking after that to Raoul Wainwright, who's the spokesman for the Victorian Public Tenants Association, and uh, he'll be in the studio today to talk about the VPTA's reaction to um, the the current state of public housing, as well as their uh, uh, reaction to the Victorian government's new task force investigating the safety of aluminium cladding used in public housing. Which is a pretty uh, pertinent issue following the Grenfell fire. Absolutely. In yeah. London. Yeah, that's right. Um, and also fires earlier this year in March in um, Atherton Gardens. So it's definitely something that's on the minds of people living mm. in um, public housing it's here in Victoria. Close to home. Absolutely. Um, and then after that, we'll be hearing an interview with Kate Shaw, who's the Australian Research Council Future Fellow in Urban Geography and Planning from the University of Melbourne, who will be talking with a Solidarity Breakfast about public housing as well. At eight, we are bringing back the alternative news segment that we know you've all been missing in your lives. So that's where we take a look at what is in today's papers and what you might not be reading um, in the mainstream media. That's right. Um, and after that, there's something else as well. Isn't yeah, there? we're yeah, going yeah. to have a chat to Ella Caldwell. Ella is one of the founding members of Red Stitch Actors Theatre in St Kilda. She's coming in to speak to us about their new show, Incognito, which opens tomorrow night. And I'm pretty excited about that. And um, and then we'll close the show with uh, poetry from Santo and Pope Fred, who are our friends from the Thursday Spoken Word show, which you should definitely stick around to for. That'll um, be towards the end of the show, um, closer to 8.30. 8.30, that's right. Um, but first off, here we go. Joining us now is Kylie Troy West from Victoria Street Drug Solutions. Kylie, thanks for coming on the show. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Victoria Street is one of the main streets in Richmond. Kylie, you're a Richmond local. I think you're from Abbotsford. You're facing a pretty concerning issue in the neighbourhood. Yes, uh, I live approximately, I'd say, 600 metres from the epicentre of the heroin crisis in North Richmond, which is the corner of Victoria and Lennox Streets. And uh, my street is overwhelmed with dealing and drug users at the moment it's it's incredibly confronting for the people that live there 
I read that someone is dying every two weeks in the area. I think those figures are based on um, the 2015 information. Of course, the coroner's reports are they, they're lagging slightly for 2016 and then for 2017, we, we really aren't sure where they're at. But my understanding is that the overdose rate for 2016 increased on 2015, where the average was one a fortnight and has increased again this year. So uh, it's pretty worrisome to, you know, in a few weeks or in a few months when we'll find out what the actual statistics are for, for 2016 because my understanding is that there has been quite quite an increase on that. And that figure was already pretty distressing. I found that, that really confronting. How did Victoria Street Drug Solutions come about? You're, you're a residence action group? That's right. So um, the way the group came about was kind of two-pronged. My neighbour and I were sitting around our kitchen table having dinner and um, she's been in the streets that I live in for 25 years. I'm, I'm relatively new. I've been living in Abbotsford for three years and I have a young son and effectively 20 years ago her son had a needle stick injury at, at his daycare centre. Someone had thrown a syringe into the playground over the fence and we were lamenting the fact that in 20 years absolutely nothing had been done and that my two-year-old son could possibly face a similar sort of injury and we kind of decided that enough was enough. We, we couldn't handle the, the political inaction, the fact that people were dying on the streets and we decided to start a little campaign to try and encourage our neighbours and fellow residents to make sure that they supported candidates for the councillor elections for Yarra City Council that would support our community in uh, seeing a safe injecting room set up and it was through that process that we came into contact with Judy Ryan and we joined forces with Judy and since then the group has grown exponentially really. We have about 12 members in the core working group and then we have, uh, we're up to 600 followers on Facebook now. We hold monthly community meetings which are attended by between um, you know 15 and 30 people and you know everyone that we talk to locally is really supportive of the cause and I haven't met anyone who doesn't want to lend a hand in some way so it's it's been really encouraging the way that the local community has jumped on board with what we're doing and shown their support and appreciation. So one of your key aims is to get the trial of a medically supervised injecting room in Richmond, is that right? That's right, yes. So that's, that's really the core focus of our group. You know, we believe in proven solutions. We're not, we're not asking for something that isn't evidence-based. The Sydney Centre has been incredibly successful. There's been no fatal overdoses in the 20-plus years that it's been in operation. There was an immediate reduction in drug use on the streets and syringe litter and, uh, you know, a reduced ambulance call-outs and, you know, that's a huge strain on the emergency services locally. So for us, this centre is it's a must-have because we're experiencing people overdosing and, and dying uh, on our streets and in our back laneways and in our public toilets and it is horrifying and um, distressing and it you know it puts a huge toll on the community mm. and you know when I say the community I don't just mean the residents and the traders you know there's there's an understanding in Abbotsford and North Richmond that that um, 
the people that use drugs are a part of this community as well. Absolutely, and and, and addiction. And they're at risk. Yeah, it's really a mental health issue, not a criminal issue, and we need to be supporting people, not not punishing them. But the Andrews government seems to be ignoring the evidence. They're against the injecting room. I saw that they're spending, I think it's 250 grand on CCTV cameras instead, which you know is probably just going to push users out of sight and out of sight of people who who can help them if they run into trouble. We're strongly opposed to the introduction of CCTV on Victoria Street because not only will it push drug users or people that use drugs uh, away from the support services that are in place. You know, North Richmond Health is locally and there's also support services from the Salvation Army and and other organisations like that that are based locally and it pushes them further into residential streets and it puts them at greater risk. But it also, at at the moment, it is quite a small area in Abbotsford and North Richmond that is affected by this. And to be honest, uh, it's pretty harrowing and I don't I don't really want to see that spread further into our neighbourhoods and affect more families mm. in the way that it's affecting mine and my understanding is that overdose and fatality rates will increase with the introduction of CCTV because as people are pushed further and further away from these support services and places where they can be easily found and treated um, that they'll be left for, for longer and um, and then you know, it will really be a tragedy for everyone. Mm. So I believe Greens MP Adam Bant is running a petition for the trial of a medically supervised injecting room. You can sign that at adambant.com forward slash supervised injecting. Carly, what else can people do to help you and Victoria Street Drug Solutions with the cause? Well, there are, there are a number of things that people can do to show their support. Uh, we ask people to get in touch with their local MP, uh, as well as Daniel Andrews, uh, Matthew Guy, Martin Foley, the Health Minister, and Richard Wynne, the Richmond MP, and express their support for an MP and explain to them why this life-saving measure is needed and why it's important. Uh, jump onto our Facebook page, which is Victoria Street Drug Solutions, and like the Facebook page, join the conversation there. You can find us on Twitter as well. And um, we actually have a, a whole list of ways that you can help on our website. I think you're going to give the details at the end. We're also running, and this is probably the most important and pressing thing at the moment, we're holding a rally sort of in conjunction with International Overdose Awareness Day and that'll be on the 27th of August at 11am in the Vic Street Precinct and um, we'll be, you know, stopping to remember those who have uh, who have passed away and died within the precinct so we'll be taking a moment to remember all of those people and uh, there'll also be a, a, a march and um, some guest speakers that really go to the heart of why this is such an important issue and why uh, an MSIC is, is such a needed facility in our community. Thank you so much, Kylie. We're going to put all the details about how people can uh, get in touch with you, find out more about what you do, and also join the rally on our website, which is 3cr.org.au. Kylie, thanks so much for coming in to talk to us. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, we're, we're really excited uh, with, I guess, all the media attention that we're getting at the moment, because ultimately this isn't a political issue. This is about saving lives. Yeah, and uh, Yeah, thank you for the support. Thank you. 
The Australian Unemployed Workers Union invites you all to a rousing Jam for Jobs and Justice concert on Sunday, July 30, featuring the Horn Stars, Reds Under the Bed, and Moreland City Marching Band at the Bella Union Bar, Trades Hall Carlton, from 2 to 5 pm. For tickets, phone 9650-5699 or book online at bellaunion.com.au. $15 full, $10 concession. Raffles and prizes are part of the deal. For more info, contact unemployedworkersunion.com. Help protect the rights and dignity of unemployed workers and pensioners. Get along to Jobs and Justice. Bella Union, Sunday, July 30. Okay, that was Cloud9 featuring Kyan from Baker Boy, who's from up in Arnhem Land. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am and you can listen online. The time is now 7.16am. The weather outside is chilly, 9.9. Actually, it's not so chilly. It's quite tropical for Melbourne. Yeah, it's Melbourne so. morning, yeah, not too bad. Yeah, definitely time of year. Um, so we're in the studio here with Raul, who is a spokesperson for the Victorian Public Tenants Association, and we've invited him to come and have a chat about the state of public housing in Victoria, including talking about the quality and safety of it. So, um, Raul, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, and um, congratulations on the new show. It's great to be on your first episode. Thank you. Thanks. It's great to have you here. Um, so we may as well get straight into it. Um, so, like I said, we've invited you to come and chat about the state of public housing, especially talking about quality and safety, which has been on a lot of people's minds lately. Um, so, yeah, the low quality of imported public um, building materials has made the news recently. You may have heard about the um, the exploding glass panels in yes. the city. Uh, that was is an issue in building in general, I suppose, because of rampant development. But is that a concern in public housing as well, the sort of low-quality material? Well, it would be a concern if we'd built any public housing recently. Yeah. Unfortunately, we haven't. So it's it's almost the case of the antiquity of the public housing stock, um, at least in this regard, being in our favour. Um, we're, we're, we're concerned about the quality of building materials, though, because we are hoping to build public housing over the next couple of mm. years. Um, and in particular, the system of certification of materials we think is particularly weak. Um, so obviously, if you're going to import materials that, say, uh, contain asbestos, you're obviously going to also um, attach a fraudulent uh, certificate to that. And we think the best protection for consumers, for the people who are living in the public housing, is that the people who are building the public housing, the building workers, uh, have the power um, to stop the use of those uh, substandard materials. Yeah, and I've heard um, uh, people from the uh, Master Master Builders Association, I believe, or some. I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name. Yes. But um, they um, were on the news recently. Um, talking to uh, talking, talking to journalists about the uh, the new Victorian government's uh, task force into the use of non-compliant materials in buildings, and what they talked about. Specifically, was the um, the use of aluminium cladding yeah. and that sort of thing, and that's been a um, that's been a concern of people in the building industry. Of course, we're not building enough public housing, and it's not being built recently. Mm. But um, there is, given sort of recent events like the fire in March over in Atherton Gardens, are 
people concerned about the the safety of their current housing as yes. well? Yeah. People, people are very concerned about the safety of high-rise public housing in particular. Um, so we've had two serious fires over the course of um, 2017. We had a fire at um, a parked house in South Melbourne, uh, right up the top on level 24, and of course we had the fire in uh, Fitzroy that's more widely known. But what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is everyone has seen the footage from London of Grenfell Tower and that tragedy. And that's just bringing home to them the particularities of living in, in high-rise, be it public housing or private housing, and they want to know that everything possible is being done to ensure their safety. Um, and so we are uh, constantly talking with the government about the safety of the high-rise. Uh, in particular, um, we've got an issue with materials being unattended in common areas, and we see that as being a bit of a pattern uh, for safety issues. Um, and we want to know that they've got strong procedures around around those materials. Um, and we know that um, people have always also raised with the government the issue of fire preparedness amongst public housing tenants who may not speak English or may not um, uh, read English and how we're giving material to those uh, tenants. And we're ensuring that every tenant, um, regardless of their uh, language abilities or their mobility, uh, are planned for in terms of fire preparedness. That's, yeah. Um, even at a, a, at a basic level, it sounded like people at Atherton Garden um, were concerned with the fact that their fire alarms didn't seem to be working and um, that there was a lot of material just sort of gathering in the building and things weren't being taken away, like flammable flammable things that have just been thrown out by people um, who don't even necessarily live in the building, but also people who do live there. And is that a is that a fairly common complaint that you hear from people in public housing that 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 is not just a thing in high rise, but it'll be a, a thing across public housing? Well, we do have a problem with unattended materials. So mm. we're saying that it's the landlord's job to have strong procedures around that. Mm. Um, so obviously, we need the fire escapes to be clear at all times. So we think that there's um, perhaps some confusion about that, about whose role it is to do what. Uh, obviously, tenants have a role to play. Um, they want to keep their uh, fire escapes clear, but we think the landlord's duties um, should be crystal clear, and that's one of the issues we're raising with them. We want to uh, be clear we're not holding ourselves out to be fire experts. So the MFB uh, have investigated the South Melbourne fire and the Fitzroy fire, and we're really eager to see their report, and obviously our job will be to make sure um, that all of the recommendations that those experts make are put into, are put into action by the, by the landlord, the government. Right. And um, so um, just to bring it back to the Atherton Gardens, sort of um, the fires that happened in, I believe it was late March. Uh, was it? Yeah, late, late March. Um, when the fires happened, people were complaining, um, made, had made complaints about the fire alarms not working and they said their complaints went unanswered and that's a whole other problem, isn't it, of um, sort of landlords and the government also not listening to the concerns of public tenants. Um, and do you, do you see that at any point in the future improving? Is that a systematic thing or is that just a thing that happens for some reason at Atherton's gar Atherton Gardens? Um, it's, it's, it's a thing that, if it happens, is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. So, um, But what we know that in terms of fire preparedness, it's not as if the job is ever going to be done and complete. It's something we need to be vigilant about um, constantly. Um, so... Uh, and because the environment is changing every day, we've got new tenants moving in, they have new needs. So we constantly have to be thinking about how all of those tenants are going to be safe. Um, and if something's not working, something as critical 
as the fire alarm or the sprinkler system, um, then obviously that needs urgent attention. Um, the sprinkler systems at the moment are um, inside the flats, so not inside the common areas. So that's another issue that some tenants have been raising and that we need to um, think about. Uh, and the MFB's opinion on that is going to be critical. Uh, but if we do have unattended material in the common areas, then it follows that we need to have a proper safety response to that. So either we don't have the flammable material in the common areas, or the common areas are treated a bit differently in terms of fire preparedness. It's got to be one or the other. And do you see, um, is that something that you hope will be covered in the, the new task force that's been announced? Well, um, we think the task force is good news for the building industry in particular. It shows that uh, the Victorian Government is taking the issue very seriously. They've appointed a former Premier and a former Deputy Premier to um, look at it. Um, but we, we hope that they um, do more than look at the buildings that have been constructed. We know the problems that happened at La Crosse um, and a few other buildings have been identified, uh, Paran and elsewhere. Um, but we hope they look at the more systemic issues as to, well, if these materials are not fit for purpose, if they're dangerous for the occupants, how did they get uh, installed in the first place? And what is going on in the construction industry by the members of the Master Builders Association that is leading to um, these substandard uh, um, buildings being uh, put up. And we think that, um, in particular, the issue of certification is, is vital for them to look at. Yeah. And Lacrosse, for those who may not remember, was a, um, a fire in Docklands, I believe, in 2014 that involved actual aluminium cladding um, that was non-compliant and it caused the fire to spread quite rapidly. But moving on from safety now, um, do you receive much um, much word from public tenants about the, the quality and um, comfort of their homes? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, does, it does go to safety. Well, yeah. the majority of our uh, public housing stock was built in the 50s and 60s, and we know exactly what it's built of and where it was built. It was all built out at Home Screen Tape, and it's made of concrete. Um, so both the high-rise and we've got a lot of uh, walk-up flats and we've got a lot of broad-acre estates, um, places like Braybrook, um, and that stock has reached the end of its usable life. We, we know that, but for the last three decades, um, successive governments have failed to invest in um, renewing our stock. So the biggest problem we have now is um, we've got many places where people are living that are obsolete, that are very cold in winter, very hot in summer, uh, are no longer fit for purpose, and in a modern society we think that we should be delivering modern, modern housing as part of uh, a business-as-usual approach for governments. Um, the ship of governments very slow to turn around. It's starting to move, um, but it's never going to be enough. Um, we've got 65,000 uh, public housing uh, homes in Victoria. We need more, but we also need those 65,000 homes to, um, uh, uh, to be uh, fit and proper places for people to live. And are you hopeful... In, in what you've read in Plan Melbourne, um, so the Victorian government's... Mel Plan Melbourne? It's the well, the Victorian government put out homes for Victorians, Victorians. the major housing policy, yeah. and uh, we welcome it as a, a step forward. Mm. Um, it, it is going to deliver um, uh, some renewal of public housing and um, some growth in public housing, um, but with 60,000 Victorians on the public housing waiting list, obviously what's in that plan is not going to be enough. Uh, we're facing a state election uh, late next year. We also need to know what the alternative government 
is thinking about uh, in relation to public housing. And we need to make sure that Homes for Victorians isn't a one-off, um, that it becomes the usual business of government to renew and grow our public housing. Um, there have been talks in some publications like, I, I believe, The Conversation and um, also The Guardian about um, shifting some of the public housing um, sort of need towards um, community housing and community organisations. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about um, sort of that shift? Well, we think that it's vital in our community that there is public housing owned by the government, that mm -hmm. the government is responsible for, and they deliver on that very important infrastructure need for Victorians, just like they build the roads and the schools and the hospitals. Um, if community housing can help us to grow affordable housing for Victorians, then we need to look at that. But if it's a question of just shuffling from public housing to community housing with no growth, no benefit for the tenants, we don't see uh, necessarily the point in that uh, exercise. Uh, for us, our focus is on growth. Uh, we need more public housing, and we need more community housing, we need more affordable housing, and we need more affordable housing for home buyers. All of these things are connected. They're all part of the one housing ecology, uh, and we want to see a multitude of solutions to what is a massive problem in society at the moment. All right, well, thank you very much for that. Um, so if people want to hear more from the VPTR, VPTR the Victorian Public Tenants Association, they want to keep up with your news, where should they go? Well, we have a, a website where we post news at vpta.org.au. We have uh, a Twitter feed at Public Tenants, and we have a Facebook page at um, Public Tenants. And um, uh, we also run a, um, an advice line for Public Tenants where we ask you know, if they have a problem, if they're not getting answers... Uh, uh, from their local housing office, they can call us up to do some uh, troubleshooting and all of those details are on our website. Of course, and we'll put all those details on our website as well just in case people need help finding them. Uh, and also we've heard that you've got a, um, a sort of campaign called Public and Proud where you talk about the um, contributions made by people who live or have lived in public housing. Uh, so what can we look forward to in that? Well, we're constantly um, speaking to high-profile people uh, who have lived in public housing and we're trying to... Um, combat that stereotype that people have about people who do live in public housing. So if you watch Current Affair or read the Herald Sun, you might have a particular view of people who uh, live in public housing. And we, we're pointing to people like uh, the actor Brian Brown, the former Deputy Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, business people, um, my favourite footballer, Doug Hawkins. So people who have um, benefited from public housing but have then given back uh, a massive amount to the community and um, there's more of us out there than people know. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming in today, Raul. Um, Raul is, again, the spokesman for the Victorian Public Tenants Association. Uh, you've been listening to 3CR. This is Monday Breakfast, and the time right now is 7.29. This one goes out to the socially secured of Australia. Bleep. Please take a number and join the others. Blurb. What steps have you taken to make a new start? Blurb. You provide the evidence and we provide the mullah. New start your very own new life. You qualify for a new life when you voluntarily, non-coercively, of your own free will, sign up for your activity agreement of mutual obligation. A mu, 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 mutual obligation. Let me spell out what this means for you. No industrial action or communist associates in the last 10 years. No moving to another area with higher unemployment in the last 20 years. No sabotaging of job interviews by wearing colourful clothing of the last 30 years. New start, your very own new life. 
Hear the inspirational story of Tom. Made redundant at 56, New Start gave him a new start in life. Very own, very own, very own, very own new life. After spending his whole adult life in the same alienated routine factory job, Tom faced the prospect of an exciting new career as a public relations analyst, or a distribution strategies coordinator, or even as a performance poet. Tom is meeting new people and learning new skills and restoring his self-esteem all because of New Start, your very own new life. And if you somehow don't end up with the career of your dreams, you can always work for the doll. Work for the doll works for you, working for you, for you, for you. Work for the doll looks great on your resume. There's no time to actually look for a new start, but you're still required to list 37 employers who interviewed you every week. Register with Work for the Doll and collect your passport to employment. No, this is not Performance Poetry Poetic Licence. It's on the Work for the Doll website. Check it out if you don't believe me. And now, introducing the Work for the Doll Prime Minister's Achievement Awards. That's on the website too. Hear the inspirational story of Jayashree. Work for the Doll. Jayashree lacked focus and direction prior to her Work for the Doll placement at shiteshovelers.com. The skills she learned there gave her the confidence to move into a paid job as CEO of a property development company. That same property development company won the Prime Minister's Achievement Award for the company that made the most profit by employing Work for the Doll participants and saving on its wages bill. Anyone can make it in the free market. Very own, very own. If you don't, the fault can only be your very own. Very own, very own, very own, very own new life. And the final award tonight is... The Prime Minister's Achievement Award for the most generous contribution to the welfare of the unemployed workers of Australia. And the winner is... The Prime Minister! Socially Secured! That was our very own performance poet, Santo Katsati, long-time presenter of 3CR's Spoken Word program, uh, presenting a, a little sonata for the socially secured, is what that was called, sonata for the socially secured, um, outlining some of the unrealistic expectations and nonsensical difficulties the federal government imposes on the mass of unemployed persons in this country. Uh, try it at your next Centrelink interview. Uh, so... Yeah, you can hear more of Santo on Spoken Word Tuesday at 9am, which I definitely recommend. We are on air at 3CRAM Community Breakfast Show at the moment. Sorry, this is Monday Breakfast. 
um, and you are. Uh, we are actually currently on air with Aurora from GetUp. Aurora, how are you? I'm good. How are you, William? I'm very well. Thank you for joining us today. Um, and we've asked you to come on air today to talk about the uh, the vigil that we have uh, that you're holding on. It's Wednesday evening, I believe. Um, yeah, so what, that's right. Yeah, what is Wednesday what's that evening. vigil all about? Yeah, so Wednesday uh, Wednesday this year marks the four-year anniversary of Kevin Rudd starting the current offshore processing regime. So it will be four years on Wednesday that he got up and said nobody coming to Australia by boat could ever find safety here. And, and the reality of that is that it's therefore been four years that we've been locking up uh, over 2,000 people, including 169 kids in offshore camps on Madison Nauru. So this Wednesday, people are coming together all around Australia to say people should never have been sent there. It's been four years too many, and we want the camps to be evacuated in a nutshell. Absolutely. Well, uh, that sounds like a sort of a fantastic cause for people to come out for, and um, we really want as many people to come out for that as possible. We've got a couple of different organisations who... um, have either endorsed this or who are going to turn up on the day. We've got the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, the Refugee Action Council. Who else are you expecting to turn up? We're expecting a huge like, cross-section of, of the Australian community. What we've seen in, in the last four years is more and more people uh, around the country coming to realise that this, uh, this policy, this government policy, this regime is totally unacceptable. You know, in the last four years, it's, we've had five parliamentary inquiries. There's been six UN investigations. There was the Gillian Triggs's Forgotten Children report. Like, we've had a report after report, investigation after investigation, making it really clear that this is is morally unacceptable, that, that these camps uh, are open and are treating people uh, the way that they do. Um, and in that time, more and more people have come forward to say that uh, that this isn't all right. So hopefully we'll see we'll see unions turning out. We'll see regular get up members, uh, and politicians. I imagine will be there, and yeah, hopefully you listening will be there too. Absolutely, I want to invite as many people to come along. We'll have the details of the uh, the the vigil on the website. But that um, having said that, it's a vigil. Um, so why why is it not taking why the form it? of just a regular protest? It's a vigil. Yeah, it's a vigil. It's a vigil because it's it's a solemn occasion. Um, mm. Six people have died in the last four years in the camps. Mm. We we're coming together to remember them uh, and to mourn them. We're also coming together to stand in solidarity with people who are still suffering in in offshore camps, and and we'll also be hearing from from people in the camps. We'll be hearing from people with lived experience, and we'll then be gathering together to to plot out what we do next uh, as as a community of people who care about this issue. Yeah, and as if it wasn't self-evident enough that people need to sort of agitate and move against um, this sort of campaign of really oppression and um, sort of horrible conditions and sort of an unjustness of holding people for seeking asylum and um, um, coming to Australia as refugees... Uh, what what are the um, the conditions that people hear about inside the camps? Oh, it's, there's, it, that would be a long a longer interview than I think we have time for this morning. Sure. But it's it's everything from we have. There are so many 
recorded cases of abuse um, and it's everything from, from child abuse in, uh, in the Nauru camp where there are still children, as I said, 169 children to at the moment we've been hearing accounts, uh, the Manus camp, the government is attempting to, to close it with people still inside it at the moment. So they're trying to close it in October with no plan to bring the people in the camp to safety. Um, and we've been hearing accounts of classrooms being shut down, um, food being, food getting consistently worse, people not being allowed to go to the gym, uh, all in people, yeah, just personal freedoms being restricted and restricted and restricted uh, because the government is trying to force people to go back to harm or to move into the PNG community where they often face uh, significant danger to, to themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a full gambit um, and the, there are UN reports for years uh, saying that there are conditions in the camps that you could consider similar to torture. And these are conditions that we absolutely wouldn't accept if they were happening in Australia, right? No, absolutely not. I mean, the only uh, the only thing that I can think of where, which is similar is our treatment of Indigenous people in prisons in this country. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's our, our two great greatest shames. Certainly. Um, so do you, do you have any hope that the, the government will be listening on Wednesday? Oh, look, I do. I do. Um, people have gathered together before on this issue. We have We have had breakthroughs. Uh, this time last year, we were just finishing up the, the Let Them Stay campaign, which you might remember, where people came out all around the country for months and months uh, to protect uh, 200 and nearly 300 now people in uh, in Australia who had been brought to Australia for medical treatment from the Manus and Nauru camps and were then at risk of being sent back uh, to the offshore camps and people came out and you know Peter Dutton was on TV saying they're definitely going back they're definitely going back and in a matter of weeks he had to change his mind because so many of us were on the streets and uh, and protesting for these people and when we do that when we can not only show up we who already believe uh, and and want to take a stand but also convince our friends and talk to our leaders about it people do listen uh, and and we can make change the most critical thing now is making sure that we're convincing our neighbours, we're, we're mobilising ourselves and we're talking to our leaders about it. Yeah, so I guess we're speaking directly to the folks at home who are listening. Bring your friends if you're coming yeah, Wednesday Yeah, bring night. your friends, bring your colleagues. Yeah. Have an awkward conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so you mentioned in October, was it? No, let me just ask the question. What action from the government are we watching for in the coming months? So the government are in a position now where, as I said, they're, they're closing, they're trying to have the Manus camp closed by uh, October, but they've got no idea of what they're going to do with the people in the camp. Mm. Uh, the contractors, the corporate contractor that runs the camp on Nauru will also be leaving in October. So the government is at a bit of a crossroads. And just over the weekend, we heard that the U.S., so the U.S. resettlement deal being the one vague option of safety that's been floated uh, by the Temple government, um, that that U.S. deal, the U.S. has actually reached its cap, its, its refugee quota for the year, and the refugee officials, the U.S. refugee officials who were on Nauru, uh, left the day after. So we're back in this this state of complete uncertainty about whether or not people will be able to go to the U.S. So we've got this looming deadline in terms of the government having to close the camp or wanting to close the camp in Manus in order to comply with uh, PNG law 
and the contract is leaving the Nauru camp and now the US deal once again looks like it's in, in crisis or on shaky ground at least and the government needs to do something and will need to make a decision. We need to be out in force to, to show them what that decision needs to be. Absolutely. Um, so uh, aside from public protest, which we'll get back to, um, what else is um, GetUp doing to fight mandatory detention and how can the public support this? The public, it's, <clears throat> sorry, um, we're doing, we, what, what GetUp is, is a community of, of people all around the country who, who care about these issues and, and refugee rights has always been really core, a really core part of our community. We've done over the years um, so many things from convincing our local councils all around the country to, to not do business with, with the corporations who were involved in offshore detention to, you know, getting out our, having local, having local events around the country, educating people. We've been, we've been fighting for this for so long and let them stay, I guess, the campaign I talked about before where we had hundreds of protests around the country, um, was, was a really good example as well. What GetUp does is is the visible power in the community that you see, and the way you can help is is getting involved and in becoming a GetUp member and joining up, or just being a great ally to to GetUp members who are doing awesome work. Um, on Wednesday, as an example of this, it's not just the events in capital cities uh, that like the ones we're talking about now, but there's also over 50 events that regular people are holding in towns across the country, um, and that's really exciting. So. If you if you do show up on on Wednesday, and I really hope we'll see you there, uh, it won't just be the big cities. It will be hopefully by Wednesday, you know, sixty, seventy events around the country. Yeah, around that, the country, that people and people are turning up on. Yeah, and around the world as well. Like I saw there's a um, there's an event happening in Manila as well. Yeah, I think one in London as well. Yeah, yeah that's good. amazing. Yeah. Um, so that being said, um, we are broadcasting from um, from what we call Melbourne. Uh, so do you, what are the details on the, the event that's happening in Melbourne on Wednesday? Yes, yeah, so it starts at 6pm outside the State Library. Uh, and if you can bring bring yourself, bring your family, bring your friends, bring your colleagues. If you want to bring some hand-painted signs and if you have candles uh, at home, we'll have some candles there as well. But if you've got some spare, it's, it's always good to, to bring your own as well. Uh, and yeah, we'll be gathering at 6pm uh, to start the vigil. Fantastic. We'll have all the details on our website, and also there's a lot of um, a lot of other media about this um, this vigil on the internet, um, which people can act, access. But if people do want to get more current news on what the um, what GetUp is doing, where can people get that on, for example, Twitter and Facebook? Yeah. So the, the our Twitter handle is is at GetUp, and we are on Facebook as as GetUp as well. So yes, do do come and find us on on the social medias and. We'll be posting pretty regular updates in the coming days. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on air today. We've been talking to Aurora, who's a human rights campaigner for GetUp. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you on Wednesday, Aurora. Thanks so much, William. See you there. Thanks, Aurora. The time is 7.45 a.m. You are listening to 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Um, We are going to play a couple of community announcements for you and a song. 
Smith Street Dreaming has become one of the area's most anticipated street festivals, featuring Pigeon Jarrah Man, Frank Yammer, Soul Diva Emma Donovan, Hip Hoppers Young Warriors, Indigenous Hip Hop Projects Wurundjeri Dance Group Jindy Warabak, MC Shelley Ware from the Mangrook Footy Show and much more. Smith Street Dreaming on the corner of Smith and Stanley Streets, Collingwood, Saturday the 22nd of July, 1 till 5pm. Smith Street Dreaming. One street, many mobs, one community. This is an alcohol and drug-free event. A 3CR supporter. I'm Alphon. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. The Voice of West Papua now has a one-hour show. We have moved from Monday 6.30 to Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. Yes, more news and music from West Papua. You're listening to Monday Breakfast with Lucy and Will. It's 7.47am. We are about to hear from 3CR's Annie McLaughlin, who caught up with Kate Shaw, Australian Research Council Future Fellow in Urban Geography and Planning from the University of Melbourne. A bit of a mouthful. Um, They're going to talk about the arguments against social mix and the sell-off of Victorian public housing assets. The report released by Kate and her master's student sparked some interesting debate. It's actually a draft paper that my master's student, Abdullahi Jama, uh, and I wrote together um, and submitted to Housing Studies, which is an academic journal, earlier this year. The reason why we uh, got some media coverage um, about the paper a couple of weeks ago uh, is because the issue is so hot and so topical now and the Victorian government has just announced another redevelopment program on another nine or so estates. So rather than waiting the six months for the paper to get peer-reviewed and finally come out in some kind of arcane academic journal, we thought it was actually really important to get it out now and, and be discussed. It was looking at the redevelopment of the Carlton Estate, which is that one on the corner of, um, of, of Lycon and Ratdown and also on the corner of Elgin and Nicholson Street, this, the third site further down um, on the former Queen Elizabeth Hospital site uh, on the corner of uh, Swanston Street and Cemetery Road. So there are three sort of components now of the redeveloped um, Carlton public housing estate. After Harley approached me to supervise his thesis because he knows that I have a... Um, a, a very keen uh, and critical perspective on uh, redevelopment um, of low-income um, neighbourhoods in general, particularly in the context of gentrification. And I've been looking very closely at the social mix um, literature over the years, uh, particularly as it comes out of America and, 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 uh, and, and England, uh, out of the UK. I'm not convinced that 
um, social mix should be this kind of unquestioned, unmitigated policy orthodoxy. It's not always great. Uh, it, it can be. It doesn't have to be. Uh, and then it gets complicated because even if something, a redevelopment is done under the guise of social mix, it doesn't necessarily end up with social mix. Uh, so he was very interested in having um, a look at how the redevelopment was going on on a place that he knows extremely well. Um, it works like this. The government demolished um, all of the walk-ups on the Carlton Estate, um, which was um, a couple of hundred. Um, and the same thing happened in the uh, Kensington redevelopment. Then a private developer is engaged to come in onto the estate, rebuild uh, and, and, and replace um, the public housing stock and build private housing, uh, the sales of which cover the, the, uh, the costs of um, building new public housing stock. Right? Uh, and in the process of that, the land for the private component gets sold to the developer and they can then sell the, the private units at whatever um, price they can get for it. Meaning, in the case of Kensington and Carlton, at least, uh, the developers walked away with a healthy profit. Did the same amount of public tenants get places to live? Uh, in Kensington, definitely not. Um, there were about 200 uh, units, public housing units lost on the estate. Um, and there were uh, many more private than new public residences built so that the resultant mix ended up in about a 50-50 um, mix of public to private. In Carlton, um, there were 192 units that were demolished. They were the, the walk-ups. Now, they were replaced by 246 new units. Right, so there is a uh, an actual increase in number of units um, by a little over 50. The thing is that the units that were demolished in the walk-ups were mainly uh, three-bedroom units, and they have been replaced by studio bedsits and, and, and one- and two-bedroom units. So, so not for families? Not for, definitely not for families, um, and there has been an overall reduction in the number of beds. So there are fewer public tenants on the estate. Um, but it's, it, it, you know, I mean, the department does this. They do this kind of little tricky thing where they talk about units rather than in, individuals to, to, to make the figures look as good as they can. But um, in fact, there has been, or on our estimate, there has probably been a drop in the total public housing population, individuals, of, of, of around 150. Uh, what your, your master's student was actually looking at was the social mix and if it had actually been successful. What kind exactly. of markers did he use? Mainly talking to people, um, but, but, but also... Um, Crucially, actually having a look at the having a look at the actual buildings and the actual construction. Um, so, I mean, you have you have to kind of take the argument in parts. I mean, I suppose one, one, the first thing that we're saying is, even if there is social mix, 
is that always and necessarily a good thing? Uh, and his paper, uh, his thesis, started with this really interesting anecdote about you know some of some of his um, his his, his uh, African mates playing basketball late at night, uh, and then the lights going out because the private residents across the road from the estate were complaining um, about the fact that you know that there were these kids up late, um, and. Then they say to each other, well, you know, that's not going to be anything until after the redevelopment when the private residents actually come onto the estate, you know. I mean, we're just going to get thrown off here. Um, so and also, their, their, their standards are going to be applied to everybody. Exactly, exactly. So there's this question of, well, I mean, is social... Who is, so his, so, the, so his, his thesis is called, why do we need social mix? And that comes from some of his friends going, well, why do we need social mix? I mean, like, who's it actually for? <laughs> who's better from, from the fact that the light's going to come off earlier and earlier? So, you know, I mean, there is this question that, that needs to be asked. And, and it's very interesting because it's often met with this kind of, you know, shock horror from from politicians and policy makers. You know, how dare you? How could you possibly suggest that, you know, these concentrations of disadvantage and these, you know, pockets of poverty uh, could be, you know, anything other than a terrible thing. Um, and and <laughs> there are two things that I like to point to. Number one is that there is quite a lot of literature that comes out, especially from the UK, that says actually you have, not to romanticise it, but you have communities of solidarity, of like mind, of similar class and socioeconomic structure who may benefit um, from being in close proximity with each other. Um, the second thing to say is that in the inner city estates in Melbourne, Kensington, Carlton, and, you know, they're looking at, well, they've started on Paran, um, they've been looking at Richmond and Fitzroy, and they're looking at, you know, at, at, at a whole other kind of ring. Those inner city estates are very, very well serviced by public transport, schools, you know, local sports centres, libraries, senior citizen centres, and they are little islands, if you like, of public housing in seas of private housing. That's right. So the Very expensive. private neighbours... Very expensive private... private yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly, very expensive private... But the point is that the, the private neighbours are right across the road. You know, I mean, like in Carlton, they're just across Cannington, Canning Street. They're just across Rathdown Street. They're just across Prince Street. Do you know? I mean, it's they're just across Elgin Street. It's so it's not as though I mean, we're not talking Baltimore, you know, of the wire here. We're not talking about you know, massive estate after estate after estate, and you know, sort of huge neighbourhoods of you know, like really deeply institutionalised poverty, which is also, of course, in, 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 in the US cities. Why this is such a uh, crucial intersection of uh, the whole issue is that this government is actually giving away public assets, public land that was for public tenants yep. to private hands and thus exacerbating yep. this notion of inequality and you're a lesser person. Yeah, and and that's precisely uh, the 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 element that distresses Abdullahi and me also that the sale of public assets is I mean it's never it's never we're never going to get them back 
the sale of this land is, is unsustainable at some point down the track, uh, further upgrades are going to be needed for the public housing. And when there's nothing left to, to sell, what happens then? I mean, the point is that the state, as a responsible property owner, should be maintaining its properties in a reasonable fashion, and it should have been doing so you know, ever since they were built, of course, just the way every other private you know, property owner is expected to. Uh, and this whole kind of rationale that is spun by the government in, in saying, oh, the state's a terrible you know, land manager, property owner, we shouldn't be in the business of housing, is, is like di disingenuous to the extreme. Why does it require private sector money to make those kinds of improvements? That was Australian Research Council Future Fellow in Urban Geography and Planning from the University of Melbourne, Kate Shaw, speaking there on some of the arguments against the social mix public housing model and the sell-off of Victorian public housing assets, which is a topic dear to many of our listeners. You'll hear more of this on Monday Breakfast in the Future. Thanks to Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast for that report. You can tune in to Solidarity Breakfast every Saturday on 3CR from 7.30am till 9am. It's now 7.59. Seeking Redemption with Freddie Jr. and Mumbles on Freestyle Community Radio on Monday afternoons at 1 o'clock. Just because you've hit rock bottom and may have done a bad thing or two doesn't mean you can't turn it around. Seeking Redemption 8.55 on your AM dial. Redemption. 3CR are selling Kofia Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. down to the real nitty-gritty. It's 8am, which means it's time for our alternative media segment. So alternative news is our critical analysis of the news cycle. So we use alternative news sources to, to bring you what you're not seeing on the front page of the mainstream papers. We're looking at alternative news on 3CR Breakfast every weekday at 8am. We highlight what's being reported and what isn't in Australia's mainstream media and how they prioritise the day's news including issues of biases, corporate influence, who gets a voice and who doesn't. Basically, we want to talk to you about what you aren't reading in the front page of the main papers. So I actually want to talk about a story that came up 
uh, on the homepage of The Guardian um, yesterday afternoon about the Liberal National Party conference up in Queensland. So they uh, chose to um, call for a number of resolutions at the conference. One of them was to ban the immigration from countries with Sharia law. Um, they also wanted to ban the like have a general ban on clothing that obscures the face. Both of those were defeated. But a second resolution that called for the ban on headscarves for children under the age of 10 was passed. So this is being reported on the Age homepage. There's a couple of quotes on here from people who were at the conference. One of them is Brooke Patterson, who is a, a PNC member at the Southport State Electoral Council, so she, and she's a PNC member at her local school. She said that she needed the debate now because otherwise in three months there'll be a Muslim uniform in state schools in Queensland, um, which I think, you know, looks like it might be a, a, a baseless um, statement. You've then got another delegate who is saying that we should be in freedom of religion. So that, that resolution was, was passed. Um, the, the Queensland Labor government frontbencher Leanne Enoch said later on Sunday when she was asked about the resolution that she was disappointed with the result. Um, she was quoted as saying that she thought it was absolutely appalling. We live in a multicultural society and they're talking about what children should, should be wearing in schools, which is the dark ages. The story was also covered in The Age this morning, um, back on page 10, so it didn't, didn't make front page news like The Guardian. Um, the, the headline was ban headscarf for schoolgirls aged under 10, Queensland NLP says goes through much of the same story um, but couches it in in other um, resolutions that were called for at the at the um, Liberal National Party conference. So talks about the fact that they rejected the motion to suspend immigration from Islamic nations who um, have Sharia law but also covered the fact that the headscarf was being being banned. So it's just, I actually had a, a flick through the Herald Sun as well and couldn't find that story, at least in the first sort of 20 or so pages that I looked for, so it wasn't covered in the Herald Sun, but um, definitely uh, an, an interesting story and I think one that we should be aware of what's happening in the, in the different states outside of Melbourne where I think maybe we might be a little bit more liberal. Yeah, but it seems like it's a story that they should at least cover because it does talk about the sort of the undercurrent in the Queensland NLP, uh, NLP, LNP and how... Um, sort of how opinions are sort of drifting towards the right with the rise of, you know, certain political parties that we don't have to mention here on air, but just how the Herald Sun didn't think it was significant enough to cover, whereas it got quite a, you know, it got some coverage in The Age and it got very good coverage in, in The Guardian sort of speaks to, I don't know, what does it talk to? Does it talk to the fracturing of our sort of mainstream media and... The Look, way in which people yeah, specialise themselves can't to comment, listen to certain things. No, can't comment on yeah. the editorial decisions. Yeah. Don't know why yeah. um, we're not seeing it in in that paper. Um, mm. If it was a conscious decision, like you said, it makes you think that they're um, potentially advocating for um, just for it to slip through unnoticed. Mm. Those sorts of decisions. So yeah. you've got a piece there, I think, that refers back to to some of the housing stories that you were talking about. Um, earlier in the show. Yeah, that's right. These ones aren't um, directly related in the same way that yours weren't, Yours are. I was reading um, The Conversation, and there's a story there by Hal Pawson. It's titled, Taxing Empty Homes, A Step Towards Affordable Housing, But Much More Can Be Done. And it's sort of talking about the recent 
uh, sort of the recent conversation that people are having in big cities about these high-rise luxury apartments that are getting built um, all over the place. And, you know, that's all very well, but a lot of them are just sitting vacant for, well, for a raft of reasons, to be fair, and um, how people are starting to think about perhaps people should tax empty homes. If you've got a house that's been purchased in some sort of luxury high-rise apartment, but it's not being used, then surely there's some sort of unequal distribution of resources there that um, needs to be rectified in some way. And um, so I was flicking through the Australian, um, which one does every now and then. And uh, so the housing crisis is addressed there, mm. um, to be fair to them. But it's addressed in the business section, in the Australian Business Review. And so I don't, um, I'm not really surprised at all that the focus taken there is about the, the growth of markets and how... Um, how their readers, potentially the investors that we're talking about, yeah. affects them. Yeah, it does. And so the, um, so the, there's no talk about um, sort of undercurrents in Australian societies agitating for taxes on empty houses, and instead it's talking about making more of those empty houses and selling them off to, to, to various wealthy property owners so that they can sort of get back on their investment. And um, so that was housing crisis can be solved. It's, um, yeah, it makes no reference at all to... It, talk, it talks about the housing crisis in just a really abstract way mm-hmm. in which there are people who want houses but can't get houses. It doesn't talk about why they can't get houses, um, not just because of the money that they don't have, but also because of other social pressures. The, and, and basically the structures that are set up that make yeah. it more difficult to yeah. to get onto the, the property ladder and to, mm. to get your first home. Whereas the, the article in the conversation has, in contrast, a fairly... Um, sort of complicated and nuanced sort of idea of um, what should be done in terms of taxing empty ho- homes and what else needs to be done as well, like, mm. um, because that's quite a quite a emotional thing when you talk about houses being empty in, in towers in the city. Um, houses being empty in, in the city, people start talking, uh, sort of thinking about this in- incredible luxury and this incredible wealth and it gets them very emotional. And so the conversation addresses that um, that that anger and also talks past it. And I think that's sort of a, a level of complexity that you don't get from from other sort of... News outlets. News outlets, And yeah. I think what, what the difference from what I can hear and what you're saying is that yeah. the conversation is trying to look for solutions. They're looking for solutions to different problems. So yes. the conversation is yeah. looking for a solution to a housing affordability crisis, basically, and looking to um, try and um, raise funds in a way um, th- that may that may mm. help and to, um, I guess, maybe prompt people to, to rent out those homes mm. or to, to mm. put more homes back on the market, whereas the solution the Oz is looking at is um, to bring, I guess, increasing wealth to to people who are... to investors. Basically. Yeah, if, instead of framing it as a housing... Um, sort of housing affordability crisis it's mm. a housing supply crisis you yep. know that there's a supply and there's a market and it doesn't talk about the affordability as such mm. and so uh, well I, you know that's the difference between the conversation and the australian and so um <laughs> i will continue reading the conversation i don't know about you but yeah um so yeah now we're going to um switch to a couple of community announcements and soon we'll be on the phone to uh red stitch theater company so we'll be right back with you Do you need assistance?
problems with daily tasks? Do your parents or grandparents? Australian Multicultural Community Services is a not-for-profit organisation providing help at home to seniors and their carers in Melbourne and Greater Geelong. Daily tasks like dressing, vacuuming, shopping or gardening can be difficult for seniors. Australian Multicultural Community Services support all eligible seniors with home care and personal care so that they remain independent while living at home. Get your loved ones the care they need. Call 9689-9170 to find out more. That's 9689-9170. A 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor The New International Bookshop for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. We're joined by Ella Caldwell from Red Stitch Actors Theatre in St Kilda who's here to talk to us about their upcoming show, Incognito. Hi Ella, thanks for coming on the show. Good morning. So Incognito weaves together uh, three different stories and uh, two of those, I believe, are based on true events. Is that, that right? That's absolutely correct, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about those those true stories? I'd love to, thank <laughs> you. Um, so... so they are loose, as you as you've said. So there is sort of some based on taken, yeah. yeah. But the, the the fascinating stories are that, um, firstly, when Einstein died, a pathologist at Princeton University uh, was troubled by the fact that there were no plans to use his body after his um, death because Einstein wished to be cremated, and the pathologist took it upon himself to decide that he needed to study the brain and took Einstein's brain after his death. That's true. Just nicked it. Just took it. Yeah, <laughs> and he ended up, you know, in our dramatised version, I mean, he does get permission. Um, and he, However, it, it, it is kind of... I mean, and there was, it was... At the time, you know, there was a lot... There were a lot less... Um, uh, sort of rules around what what you can and can't do because, of course, a lot of these things have been developed more recently. Mm. So he kind of, um, I think, in both of the instances of the the true stories that we're we're exploring, they were were kind of groundbreaking in ways, you know. So what Um, was the second story? The second, yeah, the second was, um, as I say, groundbreaking surgery. It was... Um, a, a man named Henry Mollison and he had very, very, very severe epilepsy and um, he undertook uh, surgery that had not really been done before um, on his frontal lobe to try to reduce the fits, um, the epileptic fits. But what it did was in fact um, remove his capacity to form any new memory really so he after the after the surgery uh he then had a capacity to only sort of form memories for about 30 to 90 seconds and then he would um re what would you know relapse and begin again so he could remember things up to before the surgery so he spent his life and our character spent his life remembering and feeling uh how how he did when he was in his 20s, mm. right before the surgery happened, but then his body progressing um, 
you know, as, as normal and, and kind of waking up for, for 30 to 90 seconds and then being sort of in the environment you're in and then the lapse happening and then the next 30 seconds later, it happens again. Wow, you, so, can, you can see the influence of this story in, in quite a few, I'm thinking of films like Groundhog Day and um, yeah. Dory from um, Finding Nemo, but there's, yes. yeah, it's obviously had a bit of an influence. And then there's another story, I believe, about a neuropsychologist who's, who's looking into her own mind. So there's this theme of, of looking at, at the mind and the brain in the show. That's right. And it's, the third stream, yeah, which is entirely um, fictional, is, is about is about Martha. And it's set in present day. Mm. And what's so interesting is that um, you know, the way Nick Payne has built this script, it really is like the, the many synapses and strands of the mind that we must weave together. Um, in order, it's, it's, so you kind of travel and follow the three stories, but they do connect, and uh, they do they do kind of follow a. A, a real heart as well. So the, the the brain is such a key part of the, the exploration of the play. Um, but these characters are really really grappling with who they are and and how they give their lives meaning. And you know the the, the ideas of of um, obsession are explored. You know obsession and sacrifice in terms of pursuit the pursuit of something. The the character who stole Einstein's brain is like pursuit of something at, at the cost of all else just to try to achieve um, something that he believes in but then you know the sacrifice and the cost that, that that has on his life and then you know Henry the the character that's based on the one who loses his memory mm. he, he he the one thing that is sort of there for him forever throughout his life from from when we first meet him to his 80s is love and the, the love that he had for his wife. Right, so um, pursuits, so, of, pursuits of different different obsessions, really. Yeah, and meaning, and, mm. and what, how we kind of go, if, if, if we lose our memory, are we still up? If we lose our, you know, like if you lose your capacity to um, know who you are, are you, are you still as much of the self that you were? And some of these really big philosophical questions mm. that you can kind of really get into but also uh, the answer is sometimes fairly simple and somewhat connected to the heart. (laughs) This is um, the Australian premiere of Incognito so it hasn't hasn't been on here yet. How did you come across the script? I I read a great deal. I'm also the artistic director at Red Stitch as it happens and I I and the ensemble read a number of scripts from Australia and around the world and I read this quite a few years ago actually and just loved it, and the company loved it, and it was really a matter of um, waiting until it was available. You're co-directing us. with another Red Stitch Ensemble member, Brett Cousins. How That's does right. how does co-directing work? Do you have to find a vision that, that works for both of you in how you want to bring the, the play to life? Yeah, and it's quite unusual to co-direct. Um, I mean, it's surprisingly fitting with this play, given that it's, you know, it's got three storylines. There's so much sort of so much going on that, that that having both of our brains in on it together has just been been brilliant, you know, because it's not a simple play by no, any stretch I, of the ma- I read imagination. The, the four actors are playing 21 characters between them, so you probably That's need right. you need two directors for that. <laughs> well, look, as long as they are, as you say, of, of, of one mind or, you know, of one vision. And fortunately, sort of the reason Brett and I chose two directors together is because we both were very passionate about the script and 
we um, we both had a great deal in common in terms of how we saw what we saw to be important in the script, and and we've worked together for 16 years as ensemble members and at the company. Um, so our kind of our language with one another and our our sort of creative uh, visions and and how we kind of relate to theatre is, is is quite attuned and we have very differing opinions when in our ensemble meetings at the company Brett and I are often you know battling it out over issues and kind of we have a sparky <laughs> um, debate quite and our relationship is a bit is, is 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 certainly fiery but in in many ways that serves and, and in many ways the most important thing about this was that we we were aligned on on what we wanted to create, and it's proven to be absolutely, you know, um, a very. It's proven to be absolutely uh, sort of beneficial in every way because the the creative conversations that we've had we've really just stimulated one another, and and you challenge one another when when there's something that needs to be questioned and then kind of nutted out further, and it, it's been terrific. So if people want to see the way that you and Brett have worked together to bring this show to life, how can they organise tickets? I think you open you open tomorrow night? Yeah, the first preview is, is tomorrow night and then we preview for the rest of the week and Friday and then opening night is on Saturday and you, you can um, call the box office or go onto the website which is redstitch.net and we run Wednesday, uh, we have a preview tomorrow night, but then we run Wednesday to Saturday at 8pm and Sundays at 6.30pm for the next four weeks at Red Stitch. And we'll have all of that information on our website, which is 3cr.org.au. Ella, thank you so much for coming in to join us and best wishes for the show. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR 855am on your AM dial. It's 8.19. Okay, and now we are going to hear from uh, Pope Fred, uh, anarchist and cultural agitator with a spoken word piece titled Beware the Consumer Paradigm. Pope Fred. Beware of the consumer paradigm. Be aware of the consumer paradigm. You are not your job. You've got to stand in line, get your shoes to shine, get to work by nine just to sell your time, all to maintain the consumer paradigm. Shop, 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 shop till you drop. Shop, 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 shop till you drop. Shop, 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 shop till you drop. Shut up and shop, shut up and shop, shut up and shop. We have to question why we should work consume die, and the media be glad that a work can buy a piece of pie in the sky of a system whose time is nigh. You cannot deny that excess supply causes investors to sigh, and to keep prices high they will comply that bulk dumping apply, while starving people die. Why, 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 why should they die? Why, 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 why should they die? Why, 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 why should they die? The key price is high, key price is high, key price is high. You are not the clothes you wear. Tiger Woods can mine the corporate line for his shiny diamond, his t-shirt design is another bad sign that he's a fashion victim of the consumer paradigm. Shop, 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 shop till you drop. Shop, 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 shop till you drop. Shop, 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 shop till you drop. Shut up and shop, shut up and shop, shut up and shop. Just don't forget the clothes made from sweat are part of the net of the third world debt that Jet Set forget that, that jet set beget without regret. In fact, they bet on dry or wet and what they'll get for a market upset. The kid that's wove your carpet or rolled your cigarette will never get to learn their alphabet in case they get upset at being a sponsored pet. You can buy a cassette and then forget. Buy, 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 buy till you cry. Buy, 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 buy till you cry. Buy, 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 buy till you cry. Work consumed eye, work consumed eye, work consumed eye. You are not your grande latte. 
if you look behind the fine wine with which you dine, you will divine the reason and rhyme to the market sublime is the ultimate connection to the consumer paradigm. Shop, 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 shop till you drop. Shop, 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 shop till you drop. Shop, 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 shop till you drop. Shut up and shop, shut up and shop, shut up and shop. Where's your coffee from? Does it smell of freedom? Is it from a bomb damaged kingdom of program against a condom? We have to question. More than actual boredom and the polar is running tandem with some seemingly random world menacing phantom like Saddam. We have to awaken. Or whether bacon would be making me taken by book baking, handshaking, corporate faking, covered by media muckraking, but we are not forsaken. We can get them shaking. Strike, 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 strike for the right. Strike, 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 strike for the right. Strike, 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 strike for the right. To live how you like, live how you like, live how you like. You are not your bank account. The corporate design is to blind the benign to make it a crime and give you a fine if you ever try and challenge a consumer paradigm. Chop, 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 chop till you drop. Chop, 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 chop till you drop. Chop, 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 chop till you drop. Shut up and chop, shut up and chop, shut up and chop. The middle class presumption of salvation for consumption relies on the assumption of a media malfunction that misses the junction between systemized wage reduction and capitalist overproduction. You can buy a teacher but not the solution to global pollution when the world financial institution lacks a democratic constitution and reform stifles revolution. Because you don't need a globalised market correction but a total cross-cultural insurrection. Try, 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 try for the sky. Try, 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 try for the sky. Try, 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 try for the sky. Give it a try, give it a try, give it a try. Beware of the consumer paradigm. Pope Fred. All right, that was Come My Way by, by Tamara Brown, um, which is a beautiful song. And we've also been listening to uh, Beware the Consumer Paradigm, which is by Pope Fred. Um, you can catch the discussion between Santo and Pope Fred on the Spoken Word program page of 3cr.com.au. And you should also tune into Spoken Word on Thursdays at 9am if you know what's good for you. So um, I definitely would. Um, so also, we've got some time for some community announcements. So um, get your pens out, folks, just so you know what's coming up. We'll let you know what's happening. Um, there's an event called Celebrate Cuba's Revolution with great music and a documentary from Cuba, which I would, I would recommend. It is um, on Sunday the 23rd of July. It's at 2.30 until 5 p.m. And um, the venue is going to be Melbourne Uniting... Uh, sorry, the Melbourne Unitarian Church, which is 110 Gray Street in East Melbourne. Now, the cost is $15. So, yeah, and they um, have a uh, documentary from Cuba playing as well. That's Cuba's ambassador to the UK. Teresita Vincente speaks on the October Revolution. So if that's something that sounds like it'd be interesting to you, that's Sunday the 23rd of July at 2.30 and another event keep have. your diary open to oh, the yeah. same page because also on Sunday the 23rd of July there's going to be a public housing forum at the Seaford Community Hall on Station Street in Seaford um, where we can listen, learn and speak about public housing so if you want to find out more you can contact Beryl on 0468 484 692 or Julie on 0431 623-437. The event is facilitated by the Public Interest Before Corporate Interests and Defend and Extend Public Housing Group. So that sounds fantastic. So that's also coming up. Both events are on the 23rd of July. Um, and I'd like to uh, thank our guests for today. Um, so today we had on the phone Aurora from GetUp. She's the human rights com campaigner. And she told us about the nationwide vigils happening this Wednesday the 19th. If you're in Melbourne, that's from 6 p.m. outside the State Library. Bring some candles. Um, and also earlier, we had Raoul Wainwright, um, who was the Manager of Policy and Communications 
of the Victorian Public Tenants Association and came in as their spokesperson today and we were talking about public housing and the, um, the, the quality and safety of it. I'd also like to thank Ella Caldwell from Red Stitch Actors Theatre in St Kilda for coming in to talk to us about her show that opens this week at uh, the Red Stitch Actors Theatre in St Kilda. And also early in the show, I spoke to Kylie Troy West from Victoria Street Drug Solutions. So uh, we've got all the information on our website about how you can support Victoria Street Drug Solutions with, um, with their cause. Uh, please remember to tune in tomorrow to Tuesday Breakfast. Join Ayan, who's speaking with George Newhouse from the National Justice Project. They lobby for social, economic and legislative reforms to create fairer systems for Aboriginal people and others in need. And it's Nelson Mandela Day tomorrow, so Hope Matumbu will be speaking about the South African humanist philosophy of Ubuntu. Plus, much more alternative current affairs. Fantastic. Um, so I hope you folks have enjoyed our show today. This is our first. Um, so uh, I hope you, you enjoyed what we've brought for you. We'll see you again the same time next week. Um, that's at 7am every Monday. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.